Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independence coverage of current affairs right across Australia on Community and Indigenous Radio. I'm Emma Watsky coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya on the lands of Ghanamina. Our team pays our deepest respect to Elders past and present. We extend this respect to all First Nations listeners and to the rightful custodians of the lands you are listening in from. And today on the show... Uh, when there are by-elections, particularly because voters seem to think that it's not about changing the government, but it's about sending a message to the government. I think the government, the Labor government, you know, it has some baggage here. With four jurisdictions going to the polls and a potential early federal poll, how could backflips on election promises play out in the minds of voters? Also... Community legal services are turning away 200,000 Australians in need of support because of financial strain. How can the federal government support the sector? And later in the show... And we know at least 13,000 chemicals are associated with these plastic particles, only 7,000 of which we, we know something about. Despite being around for decades, microplastics are now being termed an emerging pollutant, and researchers are concerned. What risks could microplastics pose to the environment and our health? We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today... An attempt for an Australian first parliamentary inquiry into gender dysphoria and care has been defeated in South Australia. Yesterday, independent MLC Frank Pangalo withdrew the motion just hours later with SA government and some crossbenchers opposing support. Mr Pangalo, in his speech last November, says gender-affirming procedures are complex and controversial, affecting several issues such as family and mental health. But an advocate says that while the trans community remain positive with the outcome, more work and support are needed. So what were the biggest concerns around potential for parliamentary inquiry? The Wire spoke with South Australian Rainbow Advocacy Alliance spokesperson, Beck Gowdies, to find out more. I mean, a key thing for us is that every time something like this happens at the parliamentary level is that it gives rise to really damaging and hateful rhetoric in the media and that then leads on to an increase in attacks on trans and gender diverse people on the streets even and there's evidence of that that was reported in the fueling hate report put together by trans justice last year and that includes you know like when posey parker visited victoria last year every time that someone gets a platform for this kind of false information it further fuels those people to come out and show their true colors and and be really um hateful and harmful toward one of the most vulnerable groups in our society. So our concern was that it was going to further marginalise and isolate trans and gender diverse people in South Australia and and make them even more vulnerable to attacks. I'm aware that Mr Pangalo said in his speech that this subject is perhaps one of the most complex and controversial medical issues confronting our society today. What was your reaction to this? Look, the, the evidence doesn't actually say that it's controversial. When you, when you look at the real evidence, the research that has been undertaken, it points very differently. And, and in fact, it points more to the idea that by delaying gender affirming care, that's when people are more likely to be harmed by the delay. One of the most common reports that we get, in fact, is that the process, commencing that process of going down a path of, of going into 
gender affirming care, whether that be initially through psychological talks or counselling with a mental health worker, uh, and then beyond that, onto puberty blockers, onto hormone replacement therapy, all of those kinds of things. That's a very long and drawn out process and certainly doesn't happen in a hurry for anyone, especially not children. What were some of the comments or views from uh, the trans and gender diverse community that you've heard um, or received both in the lead up and also following the inquiry's withdrawal yesterday? He knew he didn't have the numbers. And we see this happen a bit, politicians, which is fortunate in the sense that it meant that there wasn't the opportunity for that that platform to, to, to get in there. But the yeah, the responses that we've been getting from people in the community has just been overwhelmingly positive. Like I actually had someone contact me via email saying, I'm so glad that you that you've been able to get this achieved. We we were actually starting to be concerned that we were gonna have to move from South Australia because I didn't want to have my child exposed to this kind of hateful content in Parliament and what it, what it would lead to. It's a very, very serious thing. People don't seem to realise that. Generally, the kind of responses that we've been getting, this is excellent news, brilliant news. Thank you to everybody involved. So relieved to hear. I mean, I think the other side of it, to keep aware of is that this isn't the last time we're going to hear from Frank on this. This isn't the last time that we're going to hear from other anti-trans people that are out there. I'm aware that the South Australian Labor Party, the SA Greens and Michelle Lenzik didn't show support for the motion. Mm-hmm. What do you think that the broad opposition represents or, or says about this? It shows that people are becoming more educated Basically, at the end of the day, when people have a better understanding of of what the system actually looks like and understand and and meet with trans people and meet with the parents of trans people and meet with people in our community who work with trans people on a day-to-day basis and actually get an understanding of what the lived experience of trans people is like in our community, that is when people realise that this is such an important thing, you know, having accessible and available gender-affirming care is is life-saving for our community. There have been many, many years of advocacy and progress, mm-hmm. including the a statewide gender diversity model of care mm-hmm. in South Australia. Moving forward, what do you want to see governments do to improve access to care and surgeries to accommodate the needs of South Australians and also Australians looking to affirm gender? I think the start in South Australia needs to be about actually probably rolling out that gender model of care. Yes, it was released last year and that was after a very long process of developing it. And it was, there's a lot of elements of that gender model of care that will take some time to roll out. I would suggest that's probably a good place to start. Beyond that, there's a few different approaches that we have been talking about and looking at. And eventually, at some point further down the line, we'd like to see more support for certain procedures and access for people that are living in smaller communities around the country. Because I know that getting appointments, even in in bigger cities, also here definitely in Adelaide, quite often people have to wait, you know, nine months even just to have their initial appointment. South Australian Rainbow Advocacy Alliance spokesperson Bet Gowdies speaking with The Wire.
A big year in politics beckons with four states and territories going to the polls, two federal by-elections and maybe even an early federal poll. Amid the fallout of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's decision to change the Stage 3 tax cuts, how could this play into the minds of voters? Matthew Ward-Ages spoke with political commentator Professor Mark Kenny from the Australian National University's Australian Studies Institute to get a temperature check on a big year of elections. We've seen the Stage 3 tax cuts hotly debated since changes were announced by the government. Polling released over the last few days, though, shows little change for the PM or Labor either way. What will be playing on the minds of the public in the aftermath of that decision? Well, the calculation that Labor has made here is that it needs to be fighting on its own territory and by changing Stage 3, inherently the policy uh, prescription of the previous government, Labor feels it now has a policy to defend. Uh, Yes, there is the question of the broken promise, the undertaking that was given to deliver stage three tax cuts in full, and the government has changed that, but it has a, a very plausible argument, I think, to say that the circumstances have deteriorated even further than they were deteriorating earlier on with cost of living crisis and the like and instability in the world. And I think voters will applaud the fact that they're getting more out of it. The vast majority of voters getting more out of it than they had been. So uh, it might be not showing up in the polls yet. It may not have a, you know, an absolutely seismic effect on the government standing, but I think it gives the government, that is a Labor government, a policy to defend You mentioned, of course, that these changes are being positioned by the opposition as a broken promise. Will it have shaken the public's trust in Anthony Albanese? It's one of the sort of sad ironies in a way that uh, when politics is characterised by broken promises and by a lot of hyperbole around it, that voters tend to expect that sort of behaviour from their politicians. Now, it doesn't mean they like it. But I think if there is a good reason for changing a particular position, then voters might be more inclined to accept it. So somewhere in between there, I think there'll be there'll be voters who who really focus on the broken promise aspect of this policy change. Uh, but there'll be a lot of others who say, yeah, but it was changed for a good reason, and I get more out of it. The Australian Financial Review last week suggested that we might now be heading to the polls at the end of this year rather than next year, given the response to these tax changes. Do you think that that's likely? I think it's more likely than it was because the government did appear to have an element of of drift about it uh, in the aftermath of the, the unsuccessful voice referendum, which the PM had personally a fair bit invested in. And now, yes, the government's taken a calculated risk by, by changing its policy on tax. It's come up with a better policy, it says. I think there's a, there's a strong case to argue that it is a better policy for, for most Australians. And that, therefore, means there's a good chance that the government's stocks will improve over this period. We'll also see, as we've seen interest rates on hold announced this week, whether that will remain the case, who knows, but there's a good chance it will. And as uh, my friend Phil Curry in the uh, Finn made the point the other day, uh, governments go to elections when they think they can win. You mentioned there the voice referendum as well, and along with the Stage 3 tax cuts, the first opportunity for the public to have their say on those two events will be the upcoming by-elections in Dunkley and later this year in the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison's seat of Cook. Historically, incumbent governments do fare poorly in by-elections. How do you think the parties will be approaching these contests? 
I think Labor would be more nervous about Dunkley than it might be letting on, and certainly more nervous than the the, the opposition is uh, is letting on as well. Because, as you say, governments tend to get a bit of a, a whack from voters uh, when there are by elections, particularly because voters seem to think that it's not about changing the government, but it's about sending a message to the government. I think the government, the Labor government, you know, it has some baggage here. The change in the tax policy won't have done it any harm, I don't think, in aggregate. You know, there'll be some who say the Prime Minister's, you know, integrity has been been tarnished. But nonetheless, I think they'll look at it and they'll say, I'm better off. Uh, I think it's uh, just going to be a really fascinating year to watch the way the economic circumstances um, change. Hopefully they will improve and we'll see whether that uh, is reflected in the way the uh, the Labor government uh, holds itself. Already, I think you can see that in Albanese and his troops, there is a greater level of confidence. As I say, I think this goes to them having actually an argument that they feel is their argument to put rather than one they didn't really believe in before, which was being sort of snooked into supporting the previous coalition's uh, you know tax cuts for the top end. Um, so that in itself, you know, confidence breeds, breeds confidence. And Matthew Ward Aegis speaking with Professor Mark Kenny. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program. Community legal services across Australia are critical in delivering legal support for community sectors that can't afford private lawyers. Centres are already turning their back on 200,000 Australians each year because of major funding restraints. This year, the peak body for community legal services has delivered its budget submission to the federal government, asking for a $125 million boost to keep centres open. The wise Eduardo Jordan spoke with CEO of Community Legal Services Australia, Tim Leach, about their organisation. Community legal centres are community-based organisations that provide free legal assistance to people in need overwhelmingly people experiencing financial disadvantage. So we try and provide assistance with all of their legal and related problems for free and put them uh, into a better situation than when they come to us in the first place. There are 165 community legal centres right across Australia and they are all members of one national organisation, Community Legal Centres Australia. Now, you've written a submission for this year's federal budget for community legal services. What's included in this year's submission? We're asking for an additional $125 million from the Commonwealth Government per year to help keep the doors of community legal centres open and to help us respond to at least some of the unmet legal need that we are seeing in the communities where we work. So... Each year we provide assistance to about 180,000 people, often in desperate need. So that's great that assistance is valued uh, and our clients tell us that we have a great impact through our work. But there's another 200,000 people who would like to get assistance from us but whom we can't help because we don't have the resources to assist them. We are asking the government for funding to keep our doors open and so that we can start to respond to the unmet legal need out there. 
Now, I understand, well, each sector and each organization go and speak with federal ministers about the needs of, of, it, of the sector, and this is not an isolated case. How did the ministers receive your requests for this budget? I think there is broad support for the work that community legal centres do, so we appreciate that, but we really need to see some money to back up that support. So... We have a sympathetic and supportive Attorney-General who understands the value of community legal centres and is committed to our work, but this is a problem for the whole of government. To properly fund legal assistance, we are going to need a very significant cash injection. Now, if not receiving this funding, uh, the sector faces lots of challenges. How can the sector become more sustainable to provide help for those who really need it? Well, community legal centres are always looking to be as self-sustainable as they possibly can, but we will always be reliant to some extent on government funding, and this is a government responsibility. We want to live in a country where people are able to enforce their legal rights no matter how rich they are. It has to be a justice system for all of us, not just for rich people. So government has a responsibility to fund legal assistance properly. So we are just reminding that that is a responsibility of government, which it must meet. And we will do what we can to generate income, but we should not lose focus on the fact that this is a government responsibility. In what population sectors are more likely to use community legal services, and why are these services so critical? They're super critical because for many people in many communities, there's either the community legal centre or nothing. It's not like you have another option. You either get assistance from a community legal centre or you don't get help at all. So we are providing assistance to people experiencing financial hardship who can't walk down the road and pay for a private solicitor. They need free legal assistance. So people in financial hardship, we work with women and children trying to escape violence, We work with tenants, with people experiencing credit and debt problems, people with social security issues, workers whose industrial rights are being infringed. We work with refugees. We work with people and communities trying to protect their environmental rights. So they're the, just some of the communities that we work with. And I'm guessing as well that uh, community legal services are more widely used in regional communities and, um, you know, outside metropolitan areas. Am I correct? Well, community legal centres are everywhere across Australia, but they are in outer metro and rural and remote areas, and communities in those areas are very dependent on their community legal centre. There are not, not alternatives, so they're very important to those communities, yes. CEO of Community Legal Services Australia, Tim Leach, speaking with The Wires, Eduardo Jordan. Microplastics are those plastics smaller than five millimeters in diameter, and they've become a concern for researchers. They're considered as an emerging pollutant because they've been found everywhere, including inside our bodies. But how are microplastics affecting the environment and our health? The WISE contributor from Tune FM, Ash Taylor, asked Professor in Environmental Pollution at the University of New England, Susan Wilson, how long we've known about microplastics. 
they're emerging. Our knowledge as about them as a pollutant is emerging, but we know we've been producing plastics since the 1950s. They're wonderful and terrible plastics. We use them in all parts of our society. But really, it's only in recent years that we've understood the issues. We probably have quite an important pollutant issue. We don't quite know what that pollution issue is and the concerns with microplastics in the environment. So as the name implies, you know, they're, they're pieces of plastic that are very, very small. How do we differentiate between a microplastic and a piece of plastic that just happens to be small? Is yeah, so microplastics are small size plastics and they're less than five millimeters in diameter, basically. And they go down to nano size as well. And those are the problem for us. Large plastics are a problem. They block drains, they block um, environments, but the microplastics can move and they also have unique properties. They move in the environment. So they're basically plastics that have been broken down through light or wind or heat. They move in the environment. Um, They cause issues themselves. They can be ingested. They're small enough to be ingested by small organisms and they damage and they cause blockages. But they also bring with them a host of chemicals. And we know at least 13,000 chemicals are associated with these plastic particles, only 7,000 of which we, we know something about. So what are the challenges with researching something this small? Their size, trying to extract them from our environmental matrices. Sometimes our extracting solutions will digest the plastic, so we lose them. We don't have standards, easy uh, attainable standards for plastics. Our methods actually aren't standardized, and there's a lot of focus on that at the moment. You know, my understanding is that microplastics in the form of microbeads have been around since at least the 50s. So are we seeing now many more or is the amount that we're seeing almost a knock-on effect from ongoing years of plastic use. Yes. A bit, there's a lot of bans, at least in um, westernized countries, on microplastics in it being produced as primary microplastics in products. Still, some products have them and we need to work towards them not being present anymore, not needing those use. But it is a knock-on effect of the extent of microplastics that we have in the environment of the plastics we use and the breakdown of plastics being littered throughout the environment. So actually, an important microplastic are fibrous microplastics. They're the ones that really move with our wind currents and we find them in all areas of the globe where we've never had plastics like Antarctica Um, and they're fibrous um, plastics in our clothes. In fast fashion a high proportion of fashion garments um, are plastics. So how do we collect and reduce the amount of microplastics out there? It's almost a difficult one to be able to remediate. As such, we need to prevent microplastics going into the environment. We need to move towards a circular economy. And there are lots of actions at international to state level in Australia to make that happen. But we need to reorientate and diversity the plastics that we use. We need to not have single-use plastics that just end up in the environment. And we need to basically reuse and recycle all our plastics so that no more ends up in the environment. Um, And then we will hopefully have this, as we're not sourcing them into the environment, they will gradually lessen the load in our environment. You mentioned earlier that um, one of the 
ways that you analyze and collect the microplastics sometimes destroys them. Yes. Is that a solution or is that itself too dangerous? It could be a solution in some areas, but microplastics are so widely dispersed, it wouldn't be a solution for the whole of the globe. But we do have good science and the Australian government actually, just before Christmas, funded what's called a cooperative research center on solving plastic waste. Um, it's a big priority of governments at the moment. And part of that research is to try and understand remediation methods. That It's a collaboration between um, universities and industry to solve not just plastics in the environment, but also prevent plastics going into the environment. You know, they're everywhere. Do we kind of have an understanding of their effects? We do to some extent. We do know that they have impacts, adverse impacts on reproduction, um, on growth, on our immune system. They disturb our metabolic processes. The WISE contributor from Tune FM, Ash Taylor, speaking with Professor Susan Wilson. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening. The Wire is a co-production between 2SER in Gadigal, Sydney, 3ZZZ in Nam, Melbourne, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane and Radio Adelaide with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Remember, you can check out our stories at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and X. I'm Emma Watsky, coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya, Adelaide. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.